Welcome to the Table Community Church Podcast. The Table is located in the Gallatin Valley in Southwest Montana and is joining God in bringing people together around the good news of Jesus. If you have any questions or if there is in any way we can serve you, please let us know by reaching out to hello at thetablechurch.us. Again, that is hello at thetablechurch.us. We hope you enjoy the following episode. One of the questions I want us to just kind of address tonight is how to uproot envy before envy uproots us. I want that to kind of sit with you for a second. That's kind of the aim for tonight as we go through Psalm 73, is it tells us how to uproot envy before envy uproots us. What we find in Psalm 73 is envy is an unchecked area of our lives that if not dealt with, it will deal with us. It will corrode our hearts. It will deepen. It'll cause an infection in our spirit and can lead us, as the psalm says, to almost lose our footing or in some cases lose our footing entirely. And it's really going after the question, how can I believe God is good when I don't feel like God is good? Behind that question often is this issue of envy. And so I'm really excited to go with you through this Psalm 73 and expose kind of what's in this text. So we're going to take a deep breath and read Psalm 73. It is a quite a long psalm, so we're going to get your uh, Bible reading plan up to date tonight. Uh, if you've skipped it the last couple of days, I am here for you. Okay, I've got your back. Psalm 73 in the NLT, it says, truly God is good to Israel. You can read into that word Israel, his people, his people. To those whose hearts are pure, but as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone, my, for I envied the proud. When I saw them prosper despite their wickedness, they seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like all other people. They are not plagued with the problems like everyone else. They wear their pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. What a cool translation of that. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. And so people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I myself, did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Then, more literally, but then, I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. 
Truly you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet still I belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail. My spirit may grow weak. But God remains the strength of my heart forever. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this song. Lord, a sermon in and of itself speaking to our spirit. Would you, by the power of your spirit, integrate this into our lives? Help us catch a vision of you this evening that changes the way we view the world around us and those with whom we interact. Help us love you and love others well in light of this. In Jesus' name, amen. A difficult yet effective way of doing storytelling and filmmaking is sharing the ending of the story right up front. But leaving enough open-endedness to it that draws you in. Movies that do this really effectively, I think of The Prestige. I don't know if you've seen that movie. But the scene, but the movie opens with a field of top hats and cats wandering around. It's kind of an eerie vision. You're like, what the heck is going on? And the whole movie spends the whole time telling you how it got there, why these hats are there, how those cats got there. And it becomes a crucial point of the film. It draws you in. Same thing with Saving Private Ryan. You have, you have this older man walking, the opening scenes is walking into the, gar- or into the uh, Washington Memorial, looking at all of the graves. And as, as the camera pans in on his face, you wonder, what's he doing there? And then the face transforms into Tom Hanks. <laughs> Storming the beach on D-Day. And so the whole movie, you spend thinking that this old man is Captain Miller, who is played by Tom Hanks, but really, it's Private Ryan. And so it sets you up, and it draws you in, and it makes you think you have something figured out, but you really don't. This is an effective way of storytelling. This is what the psalmist here does. He has done this long before Hollywood. He begins with the ending Draws us in and tells you how he got there. Let's get to know this psalm a little bit. Psalm 73 is written by Asaph. Asaph is a worship leader, a sort of prophet in the Old Testament during the days of Solomon and King David. He was a Levite, and so he was to be theologically and morally well-grounded. He was supposed to be the guy that you could go to if you had theological questions, if you had questions about worship, if you had to complain about the worship set or song list, he was the guy you go to. And like that's who he was. He's the guy who's going to lead everything. And so 
Here he is, theologically and morally ready to go as a leader, as a worship leader and musician. We would expect someone like that to begin a psalm with, God is good. I went to a conference this past week, and you could guarantee every time somebody got up on the stage, you know they followed Jesus, they were in leadership, and you would expect them to say, God is so good, church. God is so good. We expect that to come from the mouth of Asaph. But what we don't expect is how he got there. Psalm 73 is the unfolding of how he actually came to believe that God was good, and it was going through times when it seemed like God was not good. He's taking us on his, on his journey on how he got there. And so we're going to evaluate this issue um, by looking at it in a couple of ways. The first way is this. Acknowledging the crisis. Acknowledging the crisis. The crisis that is envy. Um, as we open up this story or, or this psalm, uh, this is addressing the question, what and how am I really feeling about life right now? Is what Asaph is getting at. He opens up and tells us that God is good to his people. Who hears those who prosper is for me. I almost lost my footing and here's how. So verses 3 through three through 14 tell you the crisis that is internal envy unchecked. Essentially, Asaph is asking, why do bad things happen to good people? And... Further, why do good things happen to bad people? Has anybody ever asked that question? Why do bad things happen to good people? So the church has two responses and society has one response, all of which I think are bankrupt of actually answering the question. So if you ask several people, especially in more kind of staunch churches, why, does bad, why do bad things happen to good people? You'll likely get this. No one is good but God. Okay, thanks. It's really dismissive. Grabs a whole couple of couple of Bible passages, and then it misses the argument. It's a way of dismissing and not actually engaging thoughtfully what's being said. I don't, I don't, I don't prefer that. It can be theologically true, but practically unhelpful. And so I think we need to not just go that route because that still doesn't answer the question of well, why do bad things? Why do good things happen to bad? If we're all bad, why do they get good things? It ignores the other half of the question. So I don't, think it, I don't think it does justice, uh, number one. Number two, the second response for the church is typically have more faith. Just have more faith. Or the name it, claim it, prosperity, gospel junk that goes around. Have more faith. But again, practical experience tells us this is not true because the people who I know who have had a lot of faith still ended up in the ground. So those don't, answer, those don't adequately answer the question that ASAP is asking. And then there's society that says, hey, life is all about you. You do what you want. It's all, of, it's all on you to find your destiny, your purpose, your sense of fulfillment. Find yourself, fix yourself, do it yourself. That's society's way of saying, hey, if you want good things to happen, it's all on you. You do those things. The problem is, is our culture has realized that that's bankrupt because the more that time goes on, the more anxious, lonely, lost, depressed, whatever people are. Every year, that narrative is continuing to be more and more bankrupt. People are disillusioned and dissatisfied with life more and more. And so those don't really answer the question. And then again, more practically, 
It's not just a theoretical question. It's something that's within us. I have, a, I have someone who's really close to me as a good friend. And uh, this couple has struggled with infertility for years. Years. And they have tried everything under the book, even to the point where their Christian friends have said, don't be doing that. You're just forcing God's will. You're just doing, and they get the Christian you know, uh, rebukes and all of that stuff that's super helpful. Um, in times of in times of suffering and conflict. And so they get all of that. They're going through all of that and they still are unable to have kids. And and I remember sitting with these people I'm close with and one of them saying, why is it that I want kids more than anything? I would love this child more than anybody. But the drug addict down the road is having kids left and right, leaving their kids abandoned and not actually taking care of them. They end up in the foster system. And then I sign up to be a, a foster care parent and I can't get kids into the house or there's all these roadblocks. They go through that. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's actually the heart of what ASAP is getting at. It's not just theoretical. And the same couple, they decided to get into the adoption ring and say, okay, we're obviously not able to have kids after turning over every rock. And it was years of trying to go through that system too. How come we want to we provide a safe home? We've been approved. We have everything in line. But we can't get a kid. This is the stuff of real life that the church is called to engage. Asaph's questions run deep. This also enters into the ring of, of cancer. How come this person can do this and take care of their bodies their whole life and this person and die and this person treat their bodies like awfulness and then they live forever? We, we have all of these questions, finances, divorce, all of those questions happen in every arena of life. This is why this psalm is very relevant. What I love about this psalm is it doesn't dismiss the legitimacy of those problems. Not once does God say, don't worry about that. Nobody's good. God doesn't say that. He doesn't dismiss it. He directs you through it in a different way. The issue at core here and often in even legitimately broken spaces turns into envy and bitterness. Envy and bitterness. And I know through my own difficult experiences that sometimes we can justify our envy because we've experienced a legitimate loss, a legitimate heartache, a legitimate letdown in life. And so we feel like we are entitled to our envy. We're entitled to our anger. We're entitled to it. But envy, whether it's someone's car whether it's someone's house, whether it's someone's clothing, or whether it's someone's child, or whether it's someone's relationship that you didn't have, whatever it is, envy may come in different shades and colors, but its effects are always the same if it's left unchecked in our lives. This is Asaph's, Asaph's issue, is that the envy is beginning to corrupt his heart, and he is losing his footing <clears throat> I like what Proverbs 4 says, or sorry, Proverbs 14.30 says, maybe on your screen up here. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. That's the inner working of envy unchecked, and that's what Asaph's experiencing. And the issue in verse 3 um, is 
simply this. He says, for I envied the proud when I saw them prosper. The word prosper is the Hebrew word shalom here. And the word shalom is not just peace. It is, it is peace and then some. It's harmony. It's well-being. It's wholeness. It's all the things that you would think would happen if you're living rightly under God's rule and reign. And he's saying, God, you have misplaced my shalom. It appears to be you've given shalom to those over here who are rejecting you. And you've removed your shalom from the people who are serving you. Did God misplace my shalom is what he's asking. These people, as it unfolds in the next passage, these people, he's looking to have painless lives. They're healthy and strong. They aren't stressed like everyone else. They're self-created. They have all they want, and then they're celebrated for it, and they don't need God. And then they tell others, look at my life. You do the same. Why are you wasting your time with what's not working in your life? Tell, and so they go and tell others. It confuses God's people, including Asaph himself. And that's the problem. That's who these wicked are. So this text has often been used to rebuke people who have materials and wealth. It's not who they are. The wicked here are those who are living self-focused, oriented lives. And the reason why that's wicked is because it's corrosive and infectious. And God has not designed us to be self-oriented. When we're self-oriented, our souls wither away. And so that's why they are wicked. They are telling people, look what I've done. This is works. You do the same. And it gets to the point where Asaph himself in verse 13 says, surely I have wasted my life. That's what the, it's not a question in verse 13. Here it says, did I keep my heart for nothing? No, in the Hebrew it just says, certainly I've done all this in vain. Here you have a supreme leader in the life of God's people saying it's all a waste. Things are not the way they ought to be. And he's about to throw in the towel. Have you ever felt this way? Notice, God never says in the text that Asaph is wrong about the injustices that people are experiencing. Things are not the way they ought to be. The Bible is not just a simple, here are are how things will work in life. Things are not the way they ought to be. And the, the point is simply this. This psalm teaches us that we can honestly engage our deepest frustration. This is what it's telling us to do. Honestly engage your deepest frustration and questions. Don't ignore it. What Christians tend to do is we come up with this envy in our heart, and then here's the funny thing about envy. We don't talk about it because we don't want to appear like we don't have it together because our lives are centered on a game of comparison to other people's social media highlight reels. So we don't talk about it. We stuff it to the side. Envy is a secret sin that we just don't talk about. But this says, honestly engage your deepest frustration and questions. God is waiting for you in that space. And we know this because the next part is this. The next scene is this, is the making the decision. Asaph has arrived at the idea. He's acknowledged the problem. And now he's got to make a decision with what he's going to do about it. In verses 15 and 17, as Asaph sings on, he confesses his inability to make sense of it all. I cannot explain what happens in this world. It's craziness. It's madness. And even if he leaves God, the question still remains. There's no really clear way out for him. And so what does he do? In verse 15, this is beautiful. Verse 15, he says, if I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. Do you see what happens here? The first thing that the Holy Spirit does in the life of Asaph is remind him that this thing is bigger than himself. That he's actually a part of a people. 
And his words and his actions have consequences, not just for himself. The thing that provokes his heart first is that he belongs to a larger community where his sins and his great moments are infectious. It was the community that began the conviction. That's important. He thought about community. And then in verse 17, what happens? This is what we would call our church family. There's a sense of corporate accountability, a corporate responsibility here. He's part of something even when life simply, forgive my language, sucks. He's a part of something more than himself. But in verse 17, it says, but then, I love these statements, but then I went into your sanctuary. This is something he would do on a weekly basis. This is something he would do on a daily basis, maybe. The most unexpected thing happened in the most ordinary rhythm of his life. He had a revelation from God, but it didn't happen before he stayed committed to God and his people. The answer we think when we come up to these, these questions of complexity is, God's not working, I'm going to step away for a season and try this. When the answer really is, no, you need to step closer into his sanctuary. The sanctuary represents the presence of God with his people. There's something about doing the hard, faithful, seemingly insignificant things in moments of crisis. Something simple about continuing to show up when it doesn't make sense. Continuing to be involved when it doesn't make sense. Committing to the family when it doesn't make sense. He continues to show up and consistent with consistency. And then he had something beautiful happen. But we see this in the life of the church all the time. Typically what happens is somebody comes to church, they get excited, they go through some junk, they don't feel comfortable in the community sharing what they're going through, so they distance themselves for a season, and then they begin to lose their footing. And eventually somebody will try to bring them back, and then they get all excited again, and it's a cycle. And we have to find a way to break the cycle. And so the point is simply this intentionally seek God's presence together. This is how we make the decision to what we're going to do with our envy that infects our hearts. Intentionally seek God's presence with others. One scholar says you have to make a decision with your envy. I will either treat it for self-advantage and go for commodities, or I will treat it others-focused and dive deeper into community. Envy at its root will not permit good community. And so the answer is, is to step into God's presence with others. The problem he was having was that he was trying to do spirituality and inner soul work on his own. On his own. He needed to step back into the community to truly experience what was happening. And this leads us to the last thing, receiving a revelation. This doesn't happen until we make a decision, though about how we're going to direct our envy. Will we keep it to ourselves or will we be exposed in the context of a community and work through it? So he has this revelation in verses 18 through 28 and he says, what did, so what did he now understand? Let's take a look at this. In verses 18 through 20, we find out that he had it backwards. What he thought he understood, he didn't. The wicked are the ones on a slippery slope. According to him. They appear rich but are actually poor. 
healthy but are actually spiritually sick. They have everything but still feel like nothing. That's what he unfolds. He stops looking at the world and he begins to see through it when he steps into God's presence. He begins to see things how they really are. The wicked are the ones that aren't sure-footed, not me. I can see this by their life of accumulation. If, if they were really fulfilled, they would stop having to accumulate so much. If they really had enough power, they would stop treating other people poorly. No, it's not how it works. They keep going for more and more and more because their souls aren't satisfied. The facade covers it all. Their social media accounts aren't telling the truth. Their bank accounts lie about what true fullness is. Their search for self-fulfillment is actually quite exhausting. And they're always on the move. They are unstable. That's what he sees. Notice he doesn't get an answer to his question. He realizes that he has been asking the wrong question all along. The question is not, why are these things happening? The question is, why does he crave what they have so much? That's the question he's asking. This leads us to 21 and 22. So first, he had it backwards. Second, he was blinded by bitterness. It says he was ignorant because he was bitter. This was eating him alive, and it appeared to be a longing for justice. God, I want justice, but in reality, it was his envy. Notice, he didn't want to boycott them. He didn't want to show up with signs and say, you're wicked, you're wicked, you're wicked. He didn't want to show up to Starbucks and say, put the Christmas back on your cup. No, he <laughs> wanted to join them, not boycott them. So the issue wasn't really that he wanted justice. It's that he wanted more. He was blinded by bitterness. And again, why do I crave what they have? He had been living in comparison so long that he just assumed that what he saw was reality, was the truth. Guys, comparison is a cancer that kills our communion with God and others. And we live the air we breathe in this society. Keeping up with the Joneses has been around longer than keeping up with the Joneses has been around. This is what we're learning here. We crave what our neighbors have, and then our neighbors crave what their neighbors have. What you look at their car and their house and you say, I want that so bad. They're looking at your marriage and going, I wish I could sit on the back porch with my spouse. There's all of this mutual comparison. There's all of this mutual, and it removes the possibility for authentic community with God and others. And here's why. Number one, with God, because God never gives us enough, and therefore we stay distant from him. And number two, with others, because there's always somebody either above us or below us. We either see people as an obstacle to overcome and to get what they have, or people to stand on and step on so that we feel better about ourselves. That's the game of comparison. And that's the air our culture breathes. This kills community. This is what he's experiencing. His blindness and bitterness. All of, But, verses 23 and 24 say this. Yet, 
I still belong to you. You grasped my hand. So this whole time, as he's journeying through this, dealing with his envy, God kept him. He didn't throw him off to the side. He didn't say, I want more loyal subjects. I want more faithful people. It's like he knew that the way to deeper faith was going through it, not ignoring it. It's strange how God knows this stuff. He kept him the whole time, even if he was slipping a little. He was kept by God. All of his anger, questions, misplaced desires, temptations, and doubts were not enough to loosen God's grip, though he almost slipped. Reminds me of Paul's words in Romans 8. Nothing keeps you from the love of God. Nothing. His grip on you is so tight. And in verse 26, the question that the right question was asked, and now here's the answer. In verse 26, my health may fail and my spirit grow weak. Just so you know, if anybody pitches the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, this is a death blow to that narrative, okay? Very clearly, the word of God says, my health might fail. (laughs) My spirit may grow weak. You know what this means? He's dying, folks, okay? So whatever promises, prosperity, junk that's out there, don't buy it. Okay, it's not, it's not in the Bible. If you can't preach it to Jesus on the cross, it's not the gospel. Plain and simple. My health may fail, my spirit may grow weak, but my God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. He finds that his deepest desire is actually to be near to God. Not to have what others have. It's very possible that he doesn't get what he wants. It's very possible that the things he craves the most in life may never be fulfilled. May never be fulfilled. And that's a heart aching reality. And we should be the type of church that when people are going through loss after loss after loss, that we receive them, we love them, we care for them, and we sit with them as they process their own struggle. Because there may be a chance that they may not ever get what they want the most. Even if it's something like a restored relationship with a parent, even if it's like kids, even if whatever the case may be, we have to be a community that receives such people well. Do we create space for Asaphs? God is his strength. And what happened was once he had a revelation, he saw who God was and then he saw who he is. And this is the last point here. Humbly evaluate your heart with God. No matter what it is you've gone through. No matter what it is you've gone through. I've had to check myself over the last several months. And I, I remember doing this as a teenager too when my brother passed away. I remember there would do, like, my friends would be riding to school with their older brothers. And uh, me and my brothers would be on the bus. And I'd just be, I'd get so mad. I'd just get so mad. I remember in high school having to work my butt off for a 1998 turquoise Sunfire. Not a sexy car, all right? I tried to put loudspeakers and tinted windows. It didn't do, it didn't work. It still didn't work. But I remember my friends getting everything handed to them and me missing out on all the fun because I was on the farm working for $7 an hour so that I could pay for my insurance phone and car. I used to be envious of that. Some of you guys rolling your eyes when you never did ever worked on a farm. What are you talking about? I did. I bailed that hay. I fixed those fences. 
So my first PhD was a post hole digger degree. <laughs> You're welcome. You can put that one in your pocket and save that one for later. I'm out of the job. I'm out of that work now, so don't come to me with uh, post holes. Um, I've retired since then. No, but he evaluated his heart. And what he found was that the, the goal was to be closer to God, not further away from him. His answers didn't get resolved, but his envy was evicted. And that's what's healthy. I like what Walter Brueggemann says. He sums this up well. He says about Asaph, he has been seduced into gaining the world and forfeiting his life. But now with his sobered and recovered vision of faith, he sees that nearness to God is the goal of his life. Any self-serving alternative simply cannot be sustained. In the end, the psalmist returns. Don't ignore the envy in your heart. Engage it. Make a decision about what to do with it. And you'll find yourself having a revelation from God about who he is and who you are. Guys, it's okay to be frustrated and hurt. I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come on up. It's okay to be frustrated and hurt by things that really matter. But whatever the reason, do not let bitterness and envy corrupt your heart. Don't let it lead to the sense of blinding bitterness where you think that walking away from God is the solution. Envy is an invitation, but an invitation to insecurity and instability. Asaph said, my foot almost slipped. That's what envy does. It's an invitation to instability. And guys, we don't know how long it took him to write this song. It's a long song. I don't know how many worship planning sessions he had to have to, you know, jot this out, bounce it back and forth with the guys. But I know that stories like this take time. In my own life, in your life, envy isn't just uprooted overnight. And so when we leave here, the idea is not that you just go, okay, don't envy. Very good. No, it's that you commit to the process of uprooting envy before it uproots you. You get together with people you love and you confess this to them and help them weed it out. How? John Ortberg says, I love what John Ortberg, he says, the best place to start doing life with God is in the small moments of everyday life. This means if social media is a part of it. Sign off. This is what Proverbs this is what Proverbs 4:23. Anybody know what Proverbs 4:23 says? Anybody? No. That's okay. I'll tell you what it says. It says guard your heart. In high school this was the dating verse. <laughs> But listen to it. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. It's not about dating. This is about devotion and direction. Guard your heart. You know why? Because you guard your heart by paying attention to it in the small moments of life. How is your heart on social media? When you get on social media and you go on your political rampages, how is your heart? 
When you get on social media and you do the endless scrolling, looking at people's pictures, and you say, will I ever have that? How's your heart? When you watch the news or listen to the media um, in your car, how's your heart afterwards? Pay attention to your heart because when that's corrupted, everything else comes out of that. That's how you do it in the small moments of life. Don't, look, don't go for this big giant, I'm just going to uproot envy and be done. It doesn't work that way. ASAP, this happens all, you're going to have to do this process a lot. Guard your heart because what this world is offering, what ASAP says the world's offering, is shortcuts that actually lead to dead ends. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted like this. Remember in the wilderness? I'll give you all the kingdoms. What was Jesus called to be? A king. Satan tempts him with the very thing that God wants to promise him, but tempts him with a shortcut that's actually a dead end. Jump off, and you can have it all. Guard your heart. And the gospel, the gospel's all over this place. The gospel is that Asaph shows us that it, it's not just a worldly external issue, but that it's in here. He says, my heart is the issue. My heart needs to be uprooted and replanted, and that's what Jesus does. I'm going to end with this, Romans 5, 1 through 5. Close your eyes and listen to this verse. Romans 5, it's not going to be on the screen. If shalom is being right with God, listen to this. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace. Peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into the place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation and this hope will not lead us to disappoint for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. God has not misplaced your shalom. He has put it in Jesus and we find it in Jesus. Amen. Thanks for checking us out and listening to the podcast. We hope this resource has been meaningful for you during this time in your life. We invite you to share this episode and leave us a review to let us know how we are doing in sharing the gospel in our cultural climate. Be sure to check us out online at thetablechurch.us.